Ready? Hello and welcome to the Master Mind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is an entrepreneurial strategist, philosopher, raconteur, and the mind behind the innovative divination e-commerce business, tarot.com. He brings his decades of business know-how and his focus on personal transformation with his latest book, Intuitive Intelligence, Make Life-Changing Decisions with Perfect Timing. He is also the author of The Visionary I Ching, a book of changes for the 21st century, century and the Visionary I Ching app. He is the executive director of the Divination Foundation, and for 30 years he has hosted Pathways Radio, which focuses on personal and cultural transformation. Welcome to the show, Paul O'Brien. Thank you, Matt. Delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I had an opportunity to look at some of your work, and you have been in this game a very long time. Um, for those of the people out there that are unfamiliar with some of your work, do you want to give them a little bit of a background about who you are, um, and then we'll dive into the book and some of the amazing stuff you're working on? Okay. Um, well, I'm kind of a, a regular guy from a middle-class background who eventually became a bootstrap entrepreneur in the most unlikely way, having come up through the um, computer software business, which I became fascinated by in my youth uh, when I lived in Eugene, Oregon in the early 70s. And computers in those days, this was five years before Apple even existed, consisted of what they called a mini computer would take up half this room we have huge uh, cables and gigantic mag tapes. And we had, uh, we had, there was a computer center there and a friend of mine was the programmer there. And it had one little monitor, one terminal, about the size of an oscilloscope. And we would go, and he would let me in. We'd go in there late at night and we'd smoke a lot of pot and we'd commandeer this $150,000 mini computer, they called it. <laughs> <clears throat> and it had less power. It's like had 1% of the power of my iPhone these days. But we would commandeer it and we'd play this game that was um, coded at MIT that my friend had uh, downloaded over what was called ARPANET. The ARPANET was the very first incarnation of the internet. And this is when the internet was invented in the early 70s. And so we'd go in there and we'd play this game. Now, it was called Space War. And you'd have a couple, he hooked up a couple of joysticks and we'd just get high as a kite and play <laughs> this game with these tiny little spaceships that were, you know, about four pixels long and you could fire the rockets and they would go and we'd shoot at each other and you could disappear and go into hyperspace. And there was all these amazing things that you could do. But, you know, I've never really been a gamer, Matt. But what it, it got me though, it grabbed me because I was just fascinated by the idea that somebody wrote some code that delivered this immersive experience. And I was just in love with the whole idea of software from that point on. And I was determined to get a job at that computer center uh, because of my fascination with software. I love I started, how you have, you have one of the most advanced computers on the planet and you're using it to get high and play video games. That's, like, that's, the, that's the start of computing. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> you know, I, we did that. We do that fairly often. <clears throat> and I was just fascinated by this concept. And so I wanted to be in the industry because I started to have visions. I had visions of multimedia. I thought, whoa, somebody wrote some code to deliver an immersive experience. What, imagine what you could do with that educationally, not only just for entertainment, but for educational, maybe even for spiritual reasons. So I just had these visions of multimedia in 1973. Well, this is 20 years before CD-ROMs even existed. But anyway, it was a thought that, and so I, I wanted to get a job there. And I couldn't, I didn't have, I was a college dropout, and I didn't really um, have any computer skills. I started to take a couple classes but then, you know, I got in trouble. I was in a house that got raided and I was tripping on acid and there were six hits in my wallet. And that's what I got busted for. I was tripping. I went to jail, tripping my brains out. Oh. That, that's what you call a bad trip. Yeah. Wow. And, and so I got busted for six hits of acid and I'm in jail and, my, and they're going to send me to prison. 
Um, and my friend who was the programmer there told the director of computing, said, hey, you know, you really ought to hire O'Brien. He really, uh, he, he really needs a job. And he told him the whole story. And the, and the guy goes, well, what can he do? And the director of computing. And Jack says, well, he, he can type. And that's true. I, I type, I was really a fast typist in high school. I could type six, 70 words a minute. So they say, oh, well, we have documentation. So this guy goes to court for me. And that's how I got my job in software. And that's sort of, there's a lesson behind that. You know, sometimes the things that seem like a living nightmare. I mean, when I was in that prison, that jail cell with 40 other freaky people, most of them, um, and I was tripping all night. And the cops didn't know I was tripping or didn't know, but everybody else did. I was like a light bulb. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm asleep and I'm having a nightmare. And it just goes to show you that sometimes the, the worst things, the things that seem like the very worst things that could be happening to you, these catastrophes can turn out to be the greatest blessings because that's how I broke in to the computer software industry. And so there's a lesson in that. So I was fascinated by software. I got into the software business as a secretary in a computer center. I had hair down to my shoulders. I was a hippie freak, but I could type. And so I went to work in short pants and bare feet. It was a great job in that respect. And I was getting paid $660 a month. But the guy who was the director of computing, you know, I was taking his calls and hit one of his responsibilities was selling this high-tech software that Jack would write in order to communicate on ARPANET, which was the original internet. And, um, and so I started taking those calls and then I started closing the deals. And then Dan started taking me to trade shows and he basically was totally supportive of me taking on as much responsibility as I could handle. I was certainly making his life a lot easier. I was making sales for him. I wasn't getting any commission or anything, but I was happy to do it. So that was my first fascination as a college age student. My other fascination was with this thing called the I Ching. And this is all leading somewhere, but I basically was introduced to the I Ching as an undergrad at Berkeley. I went to Cal Berkeley before I dropped out and became a marijuana salesman. And um, this really cute girl was showing me this, this, this system for, I thought it was fortune telling. I didn't know what it was. I didn't really care. I was interested in her. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll go along with this, okay? So she, she, are you familiar with the I Ching? You must be. I love your yeah. back. Yeah, yeah. I love the yeah. I Ching Instagrams in the background here on Zoom. An honor, an honor of you for sure. Oh, thank you so much. So she says, well, why don't you think of a question to ask the Oracle and you cast the coin six times and we'll look it up in the book. So I'm just a smart aleck, like a lot of 19 year old males, you know, thinking that's the way to get the girl, you know, be a smart ass. And so I just made up some bullshit question that I didn't really care about. And, um, and I cast the coins and I'm just kind of making fun of it. And I got hexagram number four. There's 64 archetypes in the I Ching and number four is called youthful folly. And it talks about the student who lacks respect for the teacher. And I go, what? Let me try that again. And now this time, my intention was a little bit different. This time, I'm actually testing it because I noticed that it was make, I was making fun of it, and it made fun of me. So I cast it again, and this time, I'm testing it. And I get back some text that says, questioning the sincerity of the seeker. And I go, oh, my God, now it's testing me. And that's when I was hooked on the I Ching. So there were these two fascinations in my youth, the I Ching and software and with visions of multimedia. <clears throat> so I got into the software business and I became an I Ching user from that point on. And I never made a major personal decision having to do with relationships or career or anything without consulting the I Ching. Now, basically, for people who don't know what that is, it's kind of like the tarot cards of China. It's a way to stimulate your intuition. It's not fortune telling. It's a way to stimulate your intuition to think outside the box around problems that logic can't handle. And some of the most important questions in life logic can't handle. Stuff to do with relationships, stuff to do with timing, stuff to do with negotiating strategies. You can use it for business, you can use it for personal. And all it does is stimulate your intuition. It doesn't tell you what to do, and it doesn't tell you what's gonna happen. It's sort of like you have this, this guru at your beck and call 
that's going to give you some reflections or a koan, you know, like in Zen, you know, the Zen koans. And so the I Ching is like a collection of koans in a way. It gets you to think outside the box and it stimulates your intuition. So I became, you know, an ardent user and student of the I Ching. And I bought every version that I could uh, for the next, you know, 20 years. And I just studied it and I loved it and I wanted to master it. And, uh, and I also wanted to master software. Now I had this, this natural talent for sales. And um, I just want to ask, do you have a favorite version of the I Ching if somebody wants to go and experience that themselves? Yeah, the Visionary I Ching app by Paul O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You seem to be an expert. Yeah, well, we have an app. You know, well, I wanted to make it more relevant for modern users. And that's not only about it being an app. I made the software in 1989. But now we have an app and it's a nonprofit. It's published by the Divination Foundation. Actually, we have a developer partner. Um, and it's, it's pretty cool. You can do it on the iPhone. And I think, uh, I think it's a really good version because it's non-patriarchal, it's non-militaristic, it's non-sexist. And it's, it's, it's something that's very useful. That's why I like it. There are, there's a lot of versions of the I Ching out there. And a lot of them are trying to be orthodox and trying to be, you know, a super traditional translation. And I, I wanted to kind of become more Taoist and more Jungian. So ours is a kind of a Jungian uh, version. And I've been working on it for 30 years. And it's, I think it's pretty good if I do say so. I think it can help people. And you can download it for free. It's Visionary I Ching. But then there's an in-app purchase if you want to get the full power of it. Uh, and that's kind of how it works. I think it's eight, eight bucks or something. Yeah, and, and I'll also add, when we were talking before the show, we were discussing uh, your radio show for 30 years and, and saying that maybe you, you have interviewed more people on the planet in uh, self-help, spirituality, and personal development. So you're a student. You're a lifetime student. And you're adding that psychology personal development and ancient wisdom together and instantly you kind of shared it. It's like, this isn't um, fortune telling. This is a way, you know, cause sometimes we get set in a way of thinking and we're unable to think in a different way. And what this does is just probe those ideas so you can have new views, new angles of the same situation, which will give you more freedom, more perspective, more awareness and more information to make a higher quality decision. Beautiful, Matt. I couldn't have said it better. That's beautiful. You're absolutely right. And that's what I, that's what I use it for. And that's what anybody can use it for. The nice thing about the I Ching is you don't have to have a lot of expertise. You don't have to study the archetypes. Tarot cards are hard to read because unless you understand this, there's 78 tarot cards. And I founded tarot.com later, much later. But um, so I know a lot about it, but I'm not a tarot reader. Um, I don't have enough knowledge of the archetype system. There's a divination system like the I Ching or tarot cards or runes. It's basically got two components or three components. It's got a set of archetypes. And in the I Ching, there's 64 hexagrams. There's 64 ways three coins can land uh, if you toss them six times. In the tarot cards, you've got, it's a card system and it's got 78 cards. Uh, by the way, Beyond Words, who's my publisher, is coming out with an I Ching card deck of the visionary I Ching, which will be out next year sometime. So you can do that with cards too, but because I had every, every hexagram illustrated. So I have one of the few illustrated I Chings out there. But you have a set of archetypes. What is an archetype? An archetype is a symbol of a human potential or a uh, human uh, condition. And we all have all of the archetypes inside of us. So when you pull a tarot card, I'll just use that as an example. Let's say you shuffle the cards and you're thinking about something, some dilemma or some decision you have to make or some problem. And so you focus on that and you meditate and you, and you shuffle the cards and you pull a card. According to the synchronicity principle, which is the other factor, that's the timing factor. Um, the card that you pull is related to everything else that's happening at that time. Everything's related to everything else. Things are related in time. We don't know that. Western science doesn't give a damn about time. You know, we take time out of the equation. You do a scientific experiment on Tuesday night, controlled experiment, and you, do, you expect to get the same result if you do it in the middle of the night on Sunday. It doesn't, timing doesn't enter into it at all. And that's because we're trying to ask a very limited question when we're using scientific method, 
we're trying to figure out what are things made of. And we take things apart and we put them back together in new ways and we invent shit. It's, it's a beautiful thing and it's done us a lot of good in many ways and it's done us some harm too, but it can be misused. But that's the, in the Western system, they don't even consider timing. But in the East, like China and India and places like that, <clears throat> timing was considered very important. They wanted to know when is the right time to do something? You know, what does it mean when things happen together in time? There are all of these meaningful coincidences that happen. And so they understood that things are related in time, not just in space. Um, and that's what the I Ching helps us understand is the relationship between things in time. And so synchronicity means that everything happens for a reason. There are no accidents. Everything is related to everything else and everything that's ha happening at the same time is partaking of a quality that's generic to that time and to that situation. And so you can get a reading. You get a reading on a moment in time. Same thing with astrology, you know, your birth chart. What is your birth chart? It's actually astronomy. If you look at the birth chart and the planets are in these various different parts of the sky, that's where they were. If you looked at the sky with a 180 degree lens, um, looking straight up from your hospital bed the moment you were born. That's where the planets are, that's astronomy. Now astrology is figuring out, well, what is the, what are those, what is the mapping of those stars signify energetically about that moment in time? That's synchronicity. So with the divination system, you have archetypes operated on by synchronicity. In other words, you create a meaningful coincidence by the way the coins land, because you're the one tossing the coins, or by the way the cards uh, um, get mixed up in, in the cards that you pick. And that's why when I invented divination software in 1989, I was fanatic about not using random number generators. So that you click a button and it spits out six lines for the I Ching, or you pick a button and it spits out five cards. I mean, a computer can do that, that's easy. But that's not you picking the cards. There's no energetic connection there. So I wanted it to be energetically authentic. So like when we did tarot.com and we, you could pick a tarot deck, we had a hundred decks, it's still, it's still there. I sold the company, but I don't, um, I was, you could fan out, it would fan out the cards in the deck on the screen and then you could hold a, a button down and they'd shuffle for as long as you held the button down. And then you would use the mouse to pick your own cards. It wasn't clicking a button and having the computer pick the cards for you. I don't think that's energetically authentic. So there has to be this timing connection between the user and, and uh, so that's, I'm called the father of divination software because I was the first one to ever publish uh, anything like that uh, with the I Ching software in 1989, which was so far ahead of its time. 10 years later, a friend of mine who's a tarot expert, he said, was, was synchronous, I called it synchronicity, the name of the program. He goes, wasn't synchronicity the first divination program? I go, yeah, it was the, I think it was the first divination program ever published. And he goes, well, that makes you the father of interactive divination. I said, oh, well, okay. I guess that's, he says, you got to tell your PR people. I said, that's PR gold. I said, I don't have any PR people. He says, well, give me up and tell them. <laughs> so anyway, um, I didn't do it. Yeah, I never... I did it out of love. I did it out of love. I was in love with software and I was in love with the I Ching. So I'm getting back to my story. I was fascinated by these two things in my youth. And there's a lesson in that. And I wrote this book, Intuitive Intelligence, which is, it contains this story. And it's, it's kind of telling people what your stage of life, in the first stage of life until you're 30 years old, figure, find out what fascinates you. And how are you going to find that out? You're going to try stuff. You don't like make a lifetime commitment when you're 19 years old to become a lawyer because your father was a lawyer and then go $100,000 in debt in order to become a successful lawyer and make a lot of money or anything. I think it's crazy. I, I, I think, you know, I think, well, I, I'm only speaking from my own example. I mean, I was a top student. I, I got National Merit Scholarship and all that stuff, but I couldn't get any money because my father made enough money. State of California said we didn't have financial need. I was working my way through college. Hell, I worked my way through high school. My father made me go to a private high school and get a job and pay my own tuition. And I worked my way through high school. And I got a 4.0. And then I'm working my way through college. I said, to hell with this. this. 
school is the slowest way to learn anything. And I went off and became a marijuana salesman and moved to Oregon and got in trouble and got in the software business. So you never know how things are going to turn out. But um, I'm, I don't have any regrets about any of it. I, and I'm not saying everybody should do it the way that I'm doing it, but I, I encourage young people to try more things. Don't think you're going to be a billionaire by the time you're 27 or that you've got to be a rock star by the time you're 30. I mean, that's a trap. That, to think like that is set you back, you know? I, was, I worked as a secretary and then I became a, a, and then I sort of like promoted myself as a software marketing specialist. I mean, there were none in the 70s. And so I became, a, I was a, basically a salesman because I could make good money doing that. And that's, you know, but I didn't love it. I had a job as a sales executive and I was a VP of marketing when I, in the late, in the 80s. <clears throat> And it was my day job. And a day job is an important thing to have, but I apprenticed myself. I learned some valuable skills um, during those 15 years that I was uh, working for other people in the software industry. I became a direct marketing specialist and I knew what I was doing. I was sending out direct mail, millions of pieces and measuring the stats and the, you know, seeing, testing everything. Wow. In 1996 and 97, when all of a sudden we've got this thing called the World Wide Web and email, that's a direct marketer's wet dream. I knew exactly what to do with it. And if I hadn't had those core competencies that I developed over a long period of time, working for somebody else, doing something that wasn't exactly the love of my life, but it wasn't a bad thing. I didn't want to be a salesman. I, I, I didn't, you know. But it was, a, it was a way to learn, and, uh, and I learned some valuable things. So I became a software executive, and in 88, I, I was having a hard time with the company I was working for um, because the boss was a total a-hole. He was like, he made Steve Jobs look like a nice guy to work for. He was, he was an engineer who had no people skills and had never worked for anybody in his life. His father was a, a, a millionaire, and he... He staked his son, you know, he was a clever engineer. Anyway, I was working for him and um, he didn't understand sales and marketing. He thought, well, if you're good at, at sales, you should be able to sell anything, including the crazy stuff he was making, which there was no market for. It was clever, but there was no market for it. And I sort of pointed that out to him and he didn't want to hear it. So I became kind of the scapegoat and it was a very uh, dysfunctional culture. It was, it was a, a, a scapegoating culture and I was the scapegoat because I was the only, I was the head of the marketing department. And, and uh, so he blamed me for the falling revenues, et cetera. And um, so I started, I found myself casting the I Ching more often than usual, because here was a high paying job in a growing industry. And there weren't very many software marketing jobs in Portland um, at all in the eighties. And so I didn't really want to, you know, lose it, but I, I finally figured out I can't handle this. And so, um, uh, and I started, I was taking the I Ching to work, which is a bizarre thing to do. Somebody <laughs> full of engineers and I'm going and finding a closet or someplace where I can, you know, cloister myself in order to do an I Ching reading at work. And all I really wanted it to help me do was to maintain my balance. Because you're a martial artist, you know, there's, in the East we know, in, in the West we have one solution to every problem or one approach. Tackle it, make it happen, do it now. You know, the type A, assert yourself solution. But in the martial arts, you know there's a time to just do nothing, just let the energy pass you by. And there's also a time to retreat. Sometimes it's a time to run like hell. You know, so you don't always, you know, you've got three options. You know, you can assert yourself, you can retreat, or you can do nothing. And that's what the I Ching was helping me do was helping me withstand the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that were coming down in the workplace, you know, through no fault of my own, but I wasn't really ready to quit. And then finally, so that inspired me. I'm, I'm at work and I'm doing the I Ching and I thought, and it was a Macintosh company. We were an early Mac company. We were doing networking software for Macintosh. It was a high tech type thing. Apple was sponsoring us. I was flying all over the world doing Mac world shows uh, at Apple's uh, uh, expense. Um, to introduce the software that we, we were doing to share disks. It's not just laser printers, but disks and other things. So um, 
it was a good job in many ways and it was interesting, but it was very high tech. And I found myself doing the I Ching at work. And then I thought one day a light bulb went up and I go, wait a minute, I sure wish I could do this on my computer. Isn't this a graphical interface? Why couldn't I do it on this computer? I had a, we were a Mac shop. In those days, it was Mac versus DOS. Windows hadn't even become a, a thing yet. And uh, in fact, in those days, IBM used to say, if God wanted you to use a mouse, he would have given you three hands. <laughs> That's what they used to say to defeat Apple for Bill Gates's sake. Bill Gates ate IBM's lunch. That's a really interesting story with the clone industry, right? Because he didn't, IBM didn't force him to give them an exclusive. IBM had always had an exclusive. But Bill Gates saw the future of software. He was a visionary about it. And so he didn't, he, he didn't want, he wouldn't let them have an exclusive. And they were kind of hard up for an operating system. And he had DOS. And so, uh, and then they didn't get an exclusive. So he created the whole clone industry because all you had to do was create a machine that would run DOS. And then you could run all the same software as an IBM PC. Meanwhile, he's got IBM trashing Apple by saying if God wanted you to use a mouse, he would give you three hands. So Bill Gates was a pretty smart guy. And he, <laughs> so anyway, um, I'm doing, I got this vision. I said, oh, yeah, maybe I could. And so, you know, I had like $50,000 saved up. And I went out and, and hired a programmer outside the company. And I hired an artist. And I created really one of the first multimedia programs. Now, I didn't know that. I didn't know that I didn't even, in those days, 1988 multimedia meant a slideshow and a tape recorder. You know, it's like there were no CD-ROMs until about 93. Um, but I loved it. I did this thing and it had art and it had sound and it had a, like a waterfall and it was a really funky thing. And I thought, God, it really works. I figured out a way to cast the coins using a mouse and the keyboard. And so that's how I became an entrepreneur. So then I told them, I told them I was going to quit. Now they didn't care about the I Ching or what I might be doing, moonlighting and doing. They didn't care about that at all. There was no, there was no conflict there, but I was so fed up. And um, so that kind of shocked them. And one of the guys from the board of directors was in town and he, they wanted to talk to me and, and he wanted to hear it. What were, me, what are my grievances and all of that? I said, hey, I'm not getting any respect. I mean, how can they make products without getting any way in from the marketing department? It's just crazy. You can't operate like this. And then you trash the marketing department because we can't sell the crazy stuff he's making. The first product was great. That's the one that Apple, you know, sponsored. So, um, and so the guy said, well, um, what would it take for you to stay? And I said, oh, I don't know. I'll have to think about that. Can I get back to you tomorrow? And he said, okay. So I came in the next day. And I thought that night I wrote down this list. I go, well, I need a raise. And I need to, you need to up my, my override, my commission. And I need, you know, we need to set up some procedures where marketing's got some input into product development. You know, I had this whole list and I thought, we're never going to do this. You know? So I walk in there and I said, you know, I wanted a, what was it, a 10% raise or something like that, and I wanted a higher commission. So I go in there and I, I had my list, right? And I wasn't expecting, I was ready to walk. And there's a lesson in this too. So this guy, who was an older guy, he was a pretty wise man. I really, I really respected him. So he says, okay, let us talk about it for a minute. So he's talking with the young guy who was my age, the CEO. And they bring me back in and he goes, okay, O'Brien. He goes, we don't want to give you a 10% raise. We want to give you 20%. I go, what? Why? And he says, because we want you to stay and we want you to be happy. And I just said, I can't be bought, but I can be rented. Okay. So I stayed another year. <laughs> and I kept working on the I Ching thing on the side. And finally, when I got that to the right place, I exited the company, but I maintained a moonlighting job with them as their um, international marketing. Uh, guy so I kept all the accounts that were overseas and because I like to travel to Europe and Asia and things like that so um, in that moonlighting job financed my first couple of years as a bootstrap entrepreneur and uh, and and so that's how I became I, I, I became a bootstrap entrepreneur by developing the synchronicity program which uh, 
was so much fun. You know, we had a, I, 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 and I got it into Egghead Software, which used to be a big software chain, because they were looking for Mac titles at that time. And I had a thing on the front of the package. It was very colorful. And then the thing on the front of the package said, warning, regular use can lead to um, uh, feelings of superiority or something like that. It was, just, it was just hilarious. We really had a lot of fun with it. And I sold about 10,000 copies. It was like a, became kind of like a cult favorite. And then I, I realized I can't sustain a business. I'm too far ahead of my time. In 1989, people who knew what the I Ching was weren't very, first of all, there weren't very many people who knew what it was, and they certainly weren't buying software. They weren't even using computers. They didn't like computers. Um, and this is way before email and, and web pages. So I knew I had to do something more mainstream, and I did that for a few years. And, but you know, my dream, Matt, was never to make, I never imagined I was gonna make a lot of money selling I Ching software. Um, I just wanted to make a living doing something that was meaningful to me, something that I cared about. And I called it creative freedom. My definition of creative freedom was very modest though. It was basically to make a living doing something that, uh, that I thought was cool. And that's all I wanted. I never imagined paying off the mortgage or, or having or being very wealthy. And so I just kind of kept at it and then I, I when CD-ROMs came around, I made a CD-ROM version of that I Ching software. Well, the company went bankrupt one time, and because uh, I brought in, we did this time management software, which was very cool. It's called First Things First, and it was doing very well. And um, these, these three, this is another lesson in this. These three people approached me. They were a, a triad. <clears throat> they all had MBAs. And they came in and they said, we love your First Things First program which was a priority management program, a time management program. I've always been into timing. I love the whole area of how to manage time. That's what the I Ching is, it's the book of changes. It's all about managing time. And so they said, we wanna take your program and port it over to Windows. And I thought, yeah, well, that's a good idea. And so um, they talked me into turning the company over to them. But before I did that, I, um, I signed over the ownership rights of the synchronicity program to myself. I had a, a, a contract between Paul O'Brien, CEO, representing the company, and Paul O'Brien, author, the, the, who was the author of the I Ching program. And I had all the shareholders sign off on it. So it was a completely legal thing. Um, so that time, if worst comes to worst, I get to own the soul of the company, which was the thing that inspired me to become an entrepreneur in the first place. It was a labor of love, really. So they took over the company and they went bankrupt. Uh, they put 200,000 of their own money into it. I had a company that was doing a million and a half and we were, uh, I mean, it was, yeah, we were, we were doing okay. We had zero debt and they came and they just, it was bankrupt within a year. And that's when I had to go to them and I said, you know what? You guys have really messed up. I said, I don't. And they never appreciated my wisdom, my street smarts or anything. They, you know, they were MBAs, you know, blah, blah, blah. They, they knew better. And so I said, you've really screwed up. And I said, okay, you got two choices. Either you buy the company from me or I fire you. Oh my God, should have seen the fireworks go off on that. You know, it was three against one. Now I had, couple guys on the board of directors backed me up. And so we made this cockamamie deal where they took over the company and they basically went bankrupt and I got none of the royalties I was supposed to get or anything. So I'm starting over. But I had the rights to the synchronicity program. And so I created a CD-ROM because CD-ROMs were out then. I, I basically did nonprofit work for a couple of years. Uh, I ran the Oregon Multimedia Association, which was beautiful because I, I got to meet all of the all of the luminaries in multimedia, Net, uh, Netscape and um, CyberCache and all of these in the mid nineties. And so I, I, made, I got back, I climbed out of the financial hole and I made the CD-ROM of, of, of synchronicity, of the I Ching program, I called it Oracle of Changes. And then I made one for Terrell cards and um, I started selling CD-ROMs and I had a new company called Visionary Networks. And so that was, 
fiddling around along for a while. And I asked uh, my uh, programmer, I said, you know, is there any way that we could put a little multimedia sampler on our web? Because web pages came out, so I was using it to sell CD-ROMs. Well, CD-ROMs is a terrible business to be in. And there's a lot of reasons. I could go into the whole history of why CD-ROM business failed so miserably. Um, but I had the right kind of application for CD-ROM. It was clunky, and you, you didn't need to have streaming video and all of that. Um, so, but I, we weren't really making that much money. And I, I told him, I said, maybe if you could put a little multimedia sampler on the website. Of course, in those days, the web was, you know, say 28K or 64 baud or whatever the hell it was, AOL, it was just so slow. So we created this little multimedia thing and people loved it. They were banging on it all day. We were getting so much traffic, it went viral, but it wasn't actually increasing sales. And so then I realized, I go, oh, I'm in the internet business, whether I like it or not. This is what the people want. So I said, okay, let's you know, figure out a way to make a website where we can offer I Ching readings and tarot card readings on a pay to play basis. You know, five bucks each, three bucks each, whatever. That took a year <clears throat> and we did that and I created this um, virtual currency. I called it Karma Coins. And they were just basically like if you went into an arcade and you bought tokens for the different games and this game takes 10 and this one takes five and all of that. And so we created these virtual tokens and then we gave them So the, after we did that, that was a big gamble. And so after we did that, I said to my crew and I only had like five employees. I said, you know what? I want to give every, on New Year's Eve, I want to give everybody in our system. We had like a hundred thousand people in the system. They weren't customers by any means, but, I said, I want to give everybody 50 karma coins, put 50 karma coins in everybody's account and I'll send them an email because I was this direct marketing guy, right? And so, and I'll tell them, happy new year. We hope you enjoy trying out our features and maybe you'll want to get more karma coins. And so then I told my employees, I said, okay, this is going to just torpedo our sales for at least a few days. Oh, Matt, was I wrong? Our sales tripled. It was like Johnny Appleseed. I couldn't believe it. And so I started giving away karma coins for everybody's birthday. If you were on our, we knew your birthday because we were in, a, we had a, an astrology feature. And, and, and uh, so karma coins turned out to be a very fortunate thing. It was one of the earliest micropayments uh, technologies um, because it solved, it solved a lot of problems and it allowed me to be generous. And so I realized the power of generosity in business. And, um, so that went along and then we added astrology, more astrology, and then I got the franchise with AOL. We took over AOL horoscopes. We had about 20 different reports you could buy. We had about 10 different tarot card readings you could do. We had three different I Ching type of readings you could do, like maybe one for a relationship, whatever. And uh, my God, all of a sudden, we're getting all this traffic from AOL. Now I'm telling this story because there's a lot of really interesting lessons in this story. It's all in the book, but there's a lot more in the book about how to make the kind of decisions that go into these kind of things. But like uh, for AOL, imagine that you want to provide AOL the daily horoscopes. Well, a lot of people want to provide AOL the daily horoscopes. In the daily horoscopes, AOL was the biggest portal. In those days, we had portals. AOL, Yahoo, MSN, that was it. You know, you're going to go to the internet through one of these portals. And so they had a homepage and they wanted to have sticky content. They called it sticky content. This is content that's going to bring people back day after day. Nothing stickier than a daily horoscope because it changes every day. So they got to have that. It was like a prime feature on MSN and Yahoo and AOL. So, and everybody wanted that franchise. Well, AOL, in order to get that, you'd think they pay you a royalty. If you're doing quality content and you're publishing it through their platform, you should get, you know, like a, a royalty for that. Oh, no. In order to have that franchise, you had to guarantee AOL $500,000 a year. Um, it's kind of a slotting fee or half of all of your revenues that you made from the traffic that you're going to get from AOL because you're going to get trickle down traffic from AOL. I'm going, oh my God, I was making, we were making like 300 grand a year, you know, <laughs> and I'm making this commitment to, so it's a big risk, you know, believe me, the I Ching helped me make that decision. But um, 
and but they let me pay it quarterly. So I said, you know, I got the deal. I, comp I had to compete like crazy. We were the smallest competitor, but we convinced them that we had best stuff and they liked me and we got that deal. And luckily within the first year, we got a return of about 600K on the 500K. And then it just went up from there. And we were poaching AOL members. And by the time I sold the company in 2007, we had 10 million registered uh, members. And um, the company was making 10 million a year in revenues. And I sold it for you know, a multiple of that. And so it's a pretty cool story. And I never was trying, I had no exit strategy. I wasn't trying to sell it. We started to be pursued because we had so much traffic. But anyway. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, we talked it, we talked a little bit before the show and you, you were basically sharing a little bit of your story. You just shared it a little bit more in depth there. And I'm glad you did because it's truly amazing. If you were to look at and list out your accomplishments on paper, you know, getting the AOL contract, uh, making the first software, you know, step by step, they're monumental. Um, uh, achievements. They're, they're massive. They're, you know, it's like never been done stuff like the first ever, and then grow it to a massive, uh, massive user base. And at the beginning of the show, when we were chatting, you were saying, you know, that you, you're moving into this uh, software company or, and you're making a ton of money and you have that opportunity, but you wanted to move more towards meaning. And that was more important to you and, and how you basically had to create it yourself. And it seems like when you're sharing your story and you look at people who, I don't know, like make inventions or create first evers or achieve massive success and you haven't shared any of your numbers, which you can or doesn't matter if you do, but I'm aware from talking to you at the beginning, some of those numbers and earnings are incredibly massive, but it came as a result from you following your fascinations, from you following your interests. And as you pursued those and, and kind of step-by-step kept going, then you had these amazing opportunities. And like you said at the beginning, you were ready for them because you had the skills. So you weren't sitting idly by. You were always actually doing something, pursuing what had meaning to you. So you became very efficient at it, learned supplementary skills on the side, which helped your initial goal as well. So it's incredibly fascinating stuff. And I think it's an, a, an amazing story. What I want to make sure that I ask, because I know that you're a little, little bit limited on time, but in the book, like, what have you learned through all your experiences, achieving success, following your in intuition? Like, do you have some golden rules for decision-making or like what are the core principles that you use for guiding your life? Well, I think you have to differentiate between um, things that are driven by your ego and things that are driven by your heart. And like you said, I left money for meaning. I had a high paying job. I could have stayed there longer. I could have gotten another job in the software industry. You know, I was a VP of marketing and I basically starved for the next 13 years as it turned out. I mean, I didn't get paid. I didn't, wasn't able to pay myself half the time and the company went bankrupt once. Um, and that's what, I, but meaning is what drove me. I was driven by love. I, I just wanted to make a living. I wanted to, be able to make a living doing something that I liked. And I think that's, that's the lesson is know what your definition of success is and define it for yourself in terms of your values and, and, and know what your values are. And my highest value is meaning. That's a higher value than pleasure. That's a higher value than power for me. You know, and what is meaning? Meaning means that it has heartfelt significance for you. What fascinates you? What turns you on? You know, part, I think part of the reason I was so successful is that I wasn't money motivated. On the one hand, on the other hand, I had total respect for money because nobody ever gave me any. And I knew I had, you know, I was in sales because I wanted to make money. I wanted to, you know, make enough money to have a decent living. So, you know, I, I think, the, I'd say my central slogan that I would share with people is to take the risks that grow you. I knew when I was developing I Ching software that I was going to learn things that were meaningful to me, even if it completely failed. 
all of my peers thought I was crazy, believe me. And I wasn't sure they were wrong. Um, you know, I, but I just was doing something that I was inspired to do and it was based on self-knowledge. I had, of course, I did have those skills in the day job. You know, I tell people, honor your day job. Stop complaining. If you have a day job that's allowing you to cultivate some skills and get some experience, that's a really good thing. As long as you're not harming anybody, that's right livelihood, right? Everybody these days, you know, is in such a hurry to do what they love and to do nothing else. I, I see it all the time. You know, kind of the, of course, I have compassion for the gig economy because a lot of people don't have much choice. But on the other hand, some people do have choice and they just can't commit to any, they're just not willing to put, to put, to pay their dues and to apprentice themselves to learning some skills from somebody else. I never had any piece of the action until I became an entrepreneur. And even then I was kind of an accidental entrepreneur, but I want to create a creative freedom, but I'm a particularly creative guy. You know, my pathway might not be the right pathway for everybody, but I was willing to take incredible risks and really half the reason I was able to take those kind of risks was because I knew I could fall back on the skills that I had learned, on the core competencies I had learned working for somebody else. If I hadn't put in those 15 years to learn about marketing and, and, and direct marketing uh, psychology and, and strategy, I would have never been able to take those risks because I knew, well, if I completely fail, I will have learned something, I will have exercised my heart, and I'll still be able to um, go back and apply the skills that I had in order to have a day job. And by the way, everybody has a day job, you know. I, I'm a multi-millionaire now. I don't really need to work for anybody else, but I have a day job. I've got to pay taxes. I've got to manage my investments. And I run the Divination Foundation, which is this little nonprofit. So I've got people to, to manage and I have projects. Um, <clears throat> you know, after I sold my company, I. I used to say to people, I used to say to my peers, I'd say, you know, I love everything about business except two things, employees and customers. Just give me a project and leave me alone. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I want to encourage people to develop their self-knowledge before they start becoming fanatically attached to external goals. You know, let your primary goal be finding yourself and finding what's meaningful to you and go from there. You know, there was a book written years ago. I interviewed the author, um, I don't know, 20 years ago. She wrote a book, uh, Do What You Love and the Money Will Follow. And that's kind of my story is kind of an example of that. I think there's a lot of truth in that, but I think before you do what you love, why don't you learn some skills? Why don't you apprentice yourself and um, you know, slow down all the best things unfold slowly. Best love affairs, the best long-term careers. So, there's, but in the book, I talk about how do you access your intuition when you need it the most? Because that's not easy. You know, we, intuition is a very subtle um, sense. They call it the sixth sense for thousands of years. And it's like, you know, I like to say my hand, think of the hand, you know, like the palm of your hand is your mind. And these are five senses, five major antenna that are bringing in sensory information. They're bringing in information into the brain. And then you've got the chattering of the internal dialogue that's going on in the brain. There's a lot of noise in this system. Now imagine that you've got a dinky little sixth finger, a little tiny little antenna, very finely calibrated, very sensitive, and that's the intuition. And it's, 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 it's looking for a very rarefied signal. It's like you're trying to dial up a ham, ham radio to get this really, really delicate signal. And there's all kinds of noise and static and, and, and going on around it. And so you gotta kind of damp down the noise and give, that, give yourself a chance to hear or to feel that still small voice or that gut feeling. Because intuition doesn't show up as a strong feeling. In fact, I, in the book, I have something that I kind of kiddingly refer to as O'Brien's Law, which is the stronger the feeling, the less trustworthy it is as a basis for decision-making. So 
You know, you have to get, anytime you've got a strong feeling of like fear or greed or anger, that's not going to be the basis for a good decision. Calm the heck down before you make a strategic decision. So it's a book, Intuitive Intelligence is a book about strategic decision making. I told you my story, my story is like a very small part of the book. The book is basically how to, how to access your intuition when you need it the most, which is when it's the hardest to access because you're under stress, because you're freaked out, whatever. You're, you know, you've got a, a big uh, problem or you have a midlife crisis. So this is a book, the subtitle of the book is Make Life-Changing Decisions with Perfect Timing. Life-Changing Decisions. There's not a whole lot of those, but those are big decisions that have to do with what, what career to enter into or what career to switch over to or you know, whether to get married or whether to have kids or, you know, these are big decisions and you got to bring intuition to that. And you got to bring logic too. Um, it's not magical thinking. It's, there's logic and intuition. There's two questions for any strategic decision that you have to answer. There's the what question and the when question. The what question is, what is the best next move I could make? It's like in chess, you know, you've got several options of your next move. What's the best next move you can make? Or in the game of Go, are you familiar with Go? It's, a, a, it's an Asian game. It's much more sophisticated than chess, but it's much simpler. It's using black and white stones. It's a beautiful game. I've seen and it. Yeah, I've never played. You know, in Go, you have many equally good choices for your next best move. In chess, you usually don't have as much uh, if you're really good. Uh, it's, sometimes it's a very obvious next best move. But you've got to answer the what question in life. What's the best next move I might make? And then you've got to answer the when question. That's, and when should I make it? What's the, when should I execute? I don't have to be in a hurry. I don't have to do everything right now. Um, and that question, the when question, is almost 100% intuitive. There's no formula for that one. That's yeah, the timing question. Buy low, sell high. When is it high? When is it low? You know, the timing question is, I think, the most crucial question in life. So this is a book about how to cultivate perfect timing. Now, perfect timing, of course, not nobody's perfect, but what is perfect timing? That's what synchronicity defines. Synchronicity defines perfect timing. Synchronicity is about things happening together in time as they should. So this is a book about getting in touch with your intuition, cultivating your sense of timing, and executing uh, decisions um, with skill and with, with courage. It's really a book about courage and about how to take risks um, and take the risks that grow you. That's amazing. Well, I'm incredibly intrigued and I want to know more about these principles. Um, obviously, you've lived a life where you followed these rules and you've had success. And I'm reminded of, about that Alan Watts quote where somebody's asking him about, um, you know, young people are always, always asking him, what, what should I do? What's the meaning of life? Like, what career should I take? And he's just like, do what you love, you know, then, then figure out the rest later, you know, do what it is that you enjoy most and, you know, let the money and everything else figure itself out later. Because otherwise he says, like, if you're working just for money, it's absurd. Now, also at the same, at the devil's advocate, and I totally agree with what you're saying about, you know, paying your dues that a lot of people have to work really hard for what they get, you know, if you're not given a handout. And that hard work is going to take you very far because there's going to be a lot of tasks no matter where you go down the road. Like right now, you've, you've reached the stage of being a millionaire, but I'm sure that you could take all that away from what you've learned. You could build it back up again if you need resources. And that is freedom and that is knowledge and that is uh, you're going to have more courage and you're going to have more understanding and have more experience and it's going to feel better once it's built. Um, and it's kind of like what you need to do. It's part of paying the dues. It's a part of the process. Just like in skateboarding, they call it that. In snowboarding, they call it that because sometimes you fall super hard. And that is called paying the dues because you're always trying to get better. The idea is to keep getting up. Failure is a part of it. And the decision making is going to get better the more you're listening to yourself following your fascination. Um, and I really liked your analogy of the senses. I wish we could uh, keep going on because I have a lot of uh, questions I'd, that I'd throw at you, but 
to honor your time, I'll ask you, is there anything that you wish that, um, that we had talked about or you want to leave the listeners with and maybe one of your favorite strategies for decision-making? Well, there's so many things that I could throw in here. And I think I'll end with this. And this is a subsection in the book entitled, Be Receptive to Good Advice. You don't have to do it on your own, and it doesn't have to be your idea. You know, I have people come to me because I'm I invest in things once in a while, and people come to me with ideas that they think are so valuable. And I explained to them, I said, you know, let's talk about what is the value of an of an idea? What is the maximum value of a great idea? Let's say you have a great idea, you think it's a killer idea there's no way you can lose and let's say that you even have some skills to bring along with it which a lot of people don't have when they have a great idea <laughs> so what kind of skills are we talking about well if you're in a business or an enterprise you got to basically you can break it down into three areas you've got um you've got management which includes financial management you've got sales and marketing and you've got r d creative and if you don't you know so let's say you've got a great idea and you can bring some of those things to it um, you've got some expertise, maybe in marketing and sales, like I did. I also had some expertise in management. I didn't really have R&D expertise, but I was—I had a sense for product management and for product um, conception. But um, you, let's say you got this great idea. So I'd ask people, I'd say, okay, it's, but what you don't have is enough capital to hire the help you need to get this thing off the ground. And so you need to finance enough runway to get it off the ground. Okay, so you find somebody who's willing to put up the money, all the money it takes to get off the runway according to your projections and your plans and all of that. How much of the company, and they're willing to partner with you, how much of the company do you want to retain in terms of stock percentage? And of course, everybody says, just like I said the first time I was asked that question, oh, well, at least 51%. And the answer is wrong. A good idea is worth... 10 to 20%, depending upon how much of a celebrity you are. I mean, if you're going to bring a lot of marketing value to it because you're a celebrity, then maybe it's 20, 25%. That's the max. If you can get 49, jump on it. If you've got somebody who's going to take all the financial risk, jump on it. And then, then they, of course, they always say, well, I'm going to be taking risks too. I could be doing something else. I could be doing something safer. And I say, yeah, but then you're not going to be developing yourself. You're not going to be learning anything. Think of all the value of what you're going to learn by going through this, particularly if you get a partner that's going to give you a living wage while you, while you try to make this thing happen. So, you know, that's a piece of good advice right there. But then in the book, I say, be receptive to good advice. Well, you're not going to get good advice from friends and family. Not when it comes to life-changing decisions. Not when it comes to taking big risks. Because those are the people that love you. They love you right now. They love you the way you are. They're not really um, all that excited about you changing a whole lot. And they're fearful that you're going to, you know, create a problem for yourself and that you're going to fail. That's not, you're not going to get good advice from friends. Don't go to your friends for strategic advice. Find somebody who's got some expertise and who's not afraid to, you know, slap you around a little bit. And I, I did that in, um, when I resurrected the business, I said, okay, this time, after it went bankrupt, and then I started it again with the CD-ROMs, I said, this time, I'm not having a board of directors. I'm, I'm going to be the board of directors. I'm going to be the president and the secretary, which in Oregon, where I live, you can do. One person can do that. But, uh, but I wanted a board of advisors. So I asked a couple of the guys that had been on my board of directors if they would join my board of advisors. And they said, and these were guys that were software millionaires they were already well established and i had a lot of respect for them and i also trusted them i knew them and um so they said well what do you, what, what's involved and i said well there's no liability because it's not the board of directors i just want you to have lunch with me once a week or breakfast a breakfast or lunch meeting with me once a week and go over my agenda which is going to be the decisions that i'm faced with strategic and tactical and weigh in on those decisions and if you agree to do that I'll buy lunch. Every, the company will buy lunch every time. And I'll give you 1% of the stock in the company up front, 
not vesting, not options. I'll give you 1% of the stock. So they, they thought it sounded like fun. And so they did that. So for the next seven years, I had lunch with each of these guys once a week separately. And I made an agreement with myself. If I can't get one of the, and these guys were not yes men. These were no men. <laughs> they were slapping me around all the time. No, 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 that's off focus. Stay focused on, what, on the 80% that's working, blah, blah, blah. And they, because I always just wanted to do everything. I just want to create new stuff, you know? I did, that, was, that was where I live. I'm a creative type. So for seven years, they would knock me around and keep me straight. And, um, and, and I told myself, I said, I'm not going to take any strategic decision that I can't get at least one of these guys to go along with. And that was not an agreement I made with them. They didn't know I said that to myself. That was an agreement I made with myself. And I lived up to it except for one thing. There was one decision that I made that they both disagreed with. And it turned out to be the exception that proves the rule. It was one of the best decisions I ever made. And that was buying the domain name tarot.com for $42,000, which seemed like way too much money for them. You know, that's bad. That's worth a million now, but I mean, you know, and the guy who approached me to sell me tarot.com and he had eching.com too. And he sold me both of them for $42,000. I said, why did you, how did you find me? Why, why, why are you offering this to me? And he said, well, I've been watching you ever since that crazy synchronicity program came out in 1989. I mean, this was 97. And he goes, and I, you know, I've seen your websites. I've seen what you do. And he says, I own dictionary.com and thesaurus.com. And he says, oh, wow. I'm making a business out of that. And he ended up selling those for $50 million some years later. So oh. he said, I can't do justice to this divination stuff. And you're doing it right. And I really respect that. And so I said, oh, wow, that's, that's fantastic. I said, oh, well, thank you very much. I said, so, I mean, since you like the way I'm doing things, would you be willing to give me a little bit better deal? And he, uh, okay, he said, I've already got two offers. One of them was for cash and one of them was for stock. And he said, I'm not interested in the stock. And I said, how much cash? And he said, 42,000. And I go, oh, and that seemed like a whole lot of money at the time. We were just starting, you know? And I said, well, would you be willing to give me a, a, a better deal since you like the way I operate? And he goes, no. I said, okay, it's fine. I said, I only have one more question. I said, would you be willing to let me pay you off month to month for a year? <laughs> and there's this silence on the phone. And I know from sales that when you ask a closing question, you got to shut up. You can't just keep babbling. You know? And so I just let this, this awkward silence and he goes, well, I guess so. And I ended up paying him off. Actually, it took a few months. And that's, that's how I got. But you see, it's because I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. I was doing this heartfelt thing and he knew it and he respected that and he was drawn to that. And so uh, that was the only decision. But anyway, be receptive to good advice. That would be what I would leave. Find your board of advisors, find advisors that are more experienced than you, you know, and that are not going to tell you what you want to hear. That's amazing. Well, even in that story there, oh, there the one of the happiest days of my life was the day I wrote each of those guys a check for $200,000, which was 1% what we sold the company for. Holy crap. <laughs> Man, well, I was going to say that your, your story that you just shared there, there's so many important lessons in that if you're able to distinguish them. And I think that people listening to it, some of them will kind of go over their head and they won't even know what it is. But one of them that I picked up on for sure was that – you got this offer out of the blue that was synchronicity because you were being congruent and authentic in who you were. You aren't pretending to be anybody that you were not. You're, you know who you are. You know what has meaning for you. You know what you're good at and you know what you want to be of service and provide and, and, and 
learn more about. And because of that, you're being authentic. And I think that so many people really struggle with their life purpose and what to do and decision making. And they're trying to fit into these different molds, whether, you know, Instagram mold and, you know, personal development mold and uh, success mold and all that kind of stuff. And you can get to a level of financial security and even, you know, wealth to a degree, but that's not going to give real meaning and the quality of decision in your life. Like, you know, you might, you might, make all these decisions and have $10 million in the bank, but you might miss out on all the things that you were really excited about. Maybe it was kiteboarding, maybe it was art, maybe, you know, and you got to redo it again, you know, 10 years and say you die. It's like, do you want to start again at 21? And this time pursue piano, this time pursue a bit of art, you know, work your full-time job, then do the art, work your full-time job, then move the guitar because the guitar is going to lead to music, which is going to lead to another thing, to another thing, to another thing. But if you don't take the time to pursue your fascinations, it can never happen. And so, you know, it's a really balanced perspective. And and I think uh, there's a lot of amazing lessons in your story. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to dive into your book. Um, Is there anything else that you want to share and where can people find more about you? Well, divination.com is the name of our nonprofit website, which basically has the po- my podcast is on there. Um, let's check, like you said, I've been doing it, you said 30 years, but I've actually been doing it for, this is our 35th year anniversary. Wow. So I've been Amazing. reading a book, I've been reading a book a week for 35 years and interviewing the authors a lot of the time. And uh, thank you very much. And thank you for having me on your podcast. I've, I really am honored to be here and, and it's a pleasure to meet you and, and your audience. And, uh, and I'd say go to divination.com. You can find out where to get the Visionary I Ching app if you want or the, or the I Ching book um, or this book, Intuitive Intelligence. Um, it's got, it, it, you know, the, its precursor got great reviews on Amazon. I think, you know, it's generally well received and, um, I look forward to getting your feedback on it too, man. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having the courage to pursue your fascinations, fascinations and interests and to do so much amazing work. And it's just a story about what happens when you're able to do that, where you put that first, you're putting yourself first, you're putting your life first, you're putting those little impulses first. So um, I highly invite uh, people to check out your book because obviously you're a wizard at it and there's a lot of knowledge in there and a lot of incredible stories. So I'm definitely going to check it out and, uh, and make sure people check out your show and leave a review. It helps a lot. So you check out Paul's book and his show, leave a review because it's a ton of hard work. And uh, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. See you guys. Thanks for watching. Peace. <laughs>